So in the 16th century, or the 1500s, there was a young Frenchman who grew up just outside of Paris in a small town. This is a true story. His father was a prominent lawyer in the Roman Catholic Church, and he had high hopes for the son of his. He showed some intellectual abilities, and he wanted this son to become a Roman Catholic priest. And so as he grew older, he sent him off to university where he studied theology and the classics. And around the 1530s, something dramatic changed for this young Frenchman. Uh, You see, around this time in history, something called the Reformation was happening. Uh, Different people within the Roman Catholic Church were sort of starting to feel that uh, the gospel was getting lost and they wanted to recover the gospel. And one of these people, his name was Martin Luther. And his teachings were spreading throughout Europe, and this young Frenchman read them. And one of the biggest beliefs that Martin Luther and the other reformers had was that you're made right with God, or that you're saved, not by what church you belong to, or by how good you are, but through simple faith and trust in Jesus and what he has done on the cross. And this young Frenchman came across this idea, and in this time, it revolutionized his life. I guess you could say he he finally understood the good news of Jesus for the first time, and it it changed him dramatically. And he changed the direction of his life. He um, started devoting himself to this cause in France, and he joined this movement called the Huguenots. And he started to, to share this good news with other people in places like Paris, that you can be made right with God through faith in Jesus. This is what the Bible teaches. Anyway, because France was a Roman Catholic country, it didn't go down so well with the mainstream sort of people. And so they started to get pretty persecuted. And uh, this young Frenchman ended up having to flee the country um, and seek asylum elsewhere. He became a refugee overnight. And uh, I can just imagine what he might have been feeling or thinking at that time. You know, he may have been thinking... You know, God, I I feel like I've found you. I'm trying to share this with people and get the truth out there. And this is what happens. I've lost my home. I've lost all my plans for the future. Like, how could you be in this, God? What good could this serve? Now, I don't think many of us have been through that kind of suffering. But many of us can probably relate to those questions. God, where are you in this? How could this be good? Maybe you've tried to share the good news of Jesus with a colleague or a workmate and it's been thrown back in your face. Maybe you've been following Jesus faithfully for years and then all of a sudden you're rattled by a shock medical diagnosis. Maybe you're trying to build your family around Jesus and around church and and as you do that you find relational strains are happening and financial burdens and everything just seems to be more difficult. Sometimes we stop and we ask God, why? Why is this thing happening in my life right now? How could this be serving good, especially when we're trying to do good in Jesus' name? Well, the reason I bring up those questions is because that's what Acts 18, verses 1 to 17, speaks into. That's our passage this morning. If you want to open your Bibles there, uh, open them up, or your apps, because we'll be camping there, and not all the verses will be showing up on the screen this morning. So I kind of make you have to do a bit of work for that one. Uh, But we're in this passage... Uh, because we're in a series in the book of Acts called To the Ends of the Earth. We started three weeks ago in week one, we're Acts chapter 16, and we saw the Apostle Paul go to the city of Philippi, and he preached the gospel, and this uh, wealthy woman and a slave girl and a tough jailer got saved. 
And then last week we were in Acts 17 and Paul preached the gospel to the intellectual and philosophical elites of the ancient world in Athens. And this week, Paul preaches the gospel in the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And we get to see how God was at work in this city, in messy circumstances, in financial need, even in hostility to bring about good. And this whole idea, this passage, is going to bring us smack bang into the Christian teaching called providence. I'm going to use that word, so I'm just going to define that for us. And I'll start off with a definition from the Belgic Confession, which is a summary of the Christian faith from history. And this is how it defines providence. It says, God, after he had created all things, did not forsake them or give them up to fortune or chance, but rules and governs them according to his holy will, so that nothing happens in this world without his appointment. Or here's my simplified definition. Providence is God's hand guiding all things toward his good ends. It's God's hand guiding all things towards his good ends. God guiding for good. That's what we mean when we talk about providence. Providence is more than just saying that God knows all things. It's saying that he's guiding all things toward his good and beautiful and glorious ends. And we're going to see how God's providence was at work all through Acts chapter 18 in the Roman city of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a pretty interesting city. Uh, If last week when we were in Athens, if that was kind of like the Boston, which is where Harvard is, the intellectual center of the Roman world, Corinth is a little bit like the Las Vegas of the Roman world, except there weren't any roulette tables or poker tables there. Money was flowing in and out of the city. Hundreds of thousands of people lived there. There were these two prominent seaports going into the city, so lots of people would do their trade there. It was the capital of the area. So it was a big, powerful city. And uh, there was lots of money flowing around, lots of anonymity as well as you go in and out of the city. And Corinth actually became known for immorality. Um, the ancients had a word uh, that meant to act like a Corinthian, and that was basically, if, you called, if you're saying we're going to act like a Corinthian, we're going to act immorally was what it meant, essentially. And uh, the city was known for sexual indulgence. Uh, The city had a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, and uh, at least 100, if not more, women served as temple prostitutes. And locals would believe believe that sleeping with one of these prostitutes was an act of worship, and in some sense had something to do with the fertility of the land. Either way, this is Corinth. This is the city that Paul is going to go to. And he, it must have been intimidating, I can imagine. Uh, actually, we know from his first letter to the Corinthians, the Christians later on, um, he said to them how he felt. In 1 Corinthians chapter one, 2, verse 3, he said, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. That's how Paul felt when he came to the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Now, let's take a look at what happened. We're going to open up the story together. And we're going to look at it through four scenes, kind of like four scenes of a movie. And here's the first scene, providential partnership. We see this in verses 1 to 5. So Paul, he, was spent time, he had spent time in Athens in chapter 17, and then he makes his way to Corinth. And that was an 80-kilometer trek. Would have taken him a couple of days with breaks and whatnot. You can see it there on the screen. So here's that little orange line, Okay. The other lines represent other people that I'll tell you about in just a moment. So the little orange line from Athens to Corinth, 80 kilometers. Um, Paul arrives, and he's got no money. 
Uh, he, he was a human being just like you and me. He needed to put food on the table. He needed to eat. So he needed to start working to get some money. And he was a tent maker by trade, so he went to go and set up for that. Meanwhile, you see the green line there is an 800-kilometer journey that Priscilla and Aquila made from Rome. Uh, we see in verse 2 that they were kicked out of Rome by the Emperor Claudius. So they had been expelled from the city. There's a controversy among the Jews there that had been expelled. Essentially, they found themselves as refugees trying to set up life again in Corinth. And somehow, by God's providence and God's wise hand working all things together, he brings these two together, Priscilla and Aquila and Paul, to form a wonderful partnership in the city. You see, they were not just Jews like Paul, but they also had the same trade as Paul. They were tent makers as well. And that was wonderful, a wonderful work of God's providence. I was going to say wonderful luck, but wonderful work of God's providence. Because... Uh, normally, if you went to a city, you'd join the local trade guild, you'd get support straight away, but these trade guilds would normally have, they'd dedicate their work to a pagan god. So Christians and Jews didn't get involved in that. So Paul was going to set up his trade by himself, but he finds these companions, he starts to work with them, and we see that by the end of chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila are like a force to be reckoned with. They've probably been learning from Paul while they've been working with him, and they take another young preacher aside and teach him the gospel more accurately. They become these wonderful partners in the gospel for Paul. You see God's hand working in this situation. And then later on, towards the end of those verses, we see that uh, Silas and Timothy finally caught up with Paul. We see that in verse 5. They'd been left behind earlier. They didn't catch up with an Athens like he'd hoped. So he went to Corinth by himself, but they finally caught up and they brought with them, brought with them a financial gift. It's not in our passage, but you can find it in Philippians and another letter that Paul talks about that gift that they brought. And that's why Paul stops tent making and starts preaching full time because he has the financial resources to be able to do that. So what we see in this first section is providential partnership. And I think what that reminds us of today in the modern world is, I think it really reminds us of one of our values as a church, which is that we're better together. We're better together as we want to help more people find life in Jesus. We're better together as we put our money together, we put our gifts together, we reach out into our circles of influence together to help more people get to know Jesus and to find freedom in him. And secondly, I think the other thing this teaches us is that there's never a bad time to get involved in supporting the spread of the gospel. You see, Priscilla and Aquila, I can imagine this is probably one of the darkest times of their life. They'd lost their home. They'd lost everything. They're trying to set up a new life in Corinth. And it's in that stage of their life that God uses them so wonderfully to support Paul. And they learn about the gospel more deeply. And they're able to share it with others as time went on. You see, there's never an ideal time to get involved. The ideal time is now. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't thought about how God wants to use your life and your gifts and your resources to help more people find life in Jesus, I want to encourage you to consider that. That's what we learn as we look at this first scene, providential partnership. In the second scene, we see providential hostility in verses 6 to 8. So Silas and Timothy, they come along, they bring some money and give it to Paul. And so he can live and just start preaching the gospel now. So he devotes himself to preaching full-time. Now, I think I would have thought, okay, now things are going to move forward. People are going to start to believe. I've got more time now. But things actually start off getting more hostile. 
Uh, he keeps trying to tell the Jews in the synagogue, hey, your Old Testament, like the Old Testament, your scriptures, they were always pointing forward to this king that was promised to the Messiah. And that king is Jesus. He fits it so perfectly. But they didn't believe. They rejected what Paul was saying. And so he shook out his clothes and he said to them in verse 6, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And that's his way of drawing on some imagery from a Jewish prophet called Ezekiel. He's in our Old Testament. If you go to chapter 33, God is talking to Ezekiel and saying, I've given you a message to share with Israel. If you share it and they reject it, their blood will be on their own heads. But if you don't share it, Ezekiel, if you're not courageous, and if you don't say what I'm telling you to say, then I'll require their blood on your hands. And so Paul's saying to the Jews, essentially, God has sent me. The news I'm telling you is true. But since you're still rejecting it, your blood is on your own heads. I've done what I can. Now, at that point, I personally think I would have been licking my wounds a little bit. Like having been abused, trying so hard to love these people and share the truth with them. But Paul doesn't do that. Instead, he does the very next best thing. He goes next door to the house of a guy called Titius Justice, and the gospel starts to move forward in a wonderful way. Uh, Crispus, the synagogue leader, so evidently some people were listening in the synagogue, he gets saved, and his whole household believes. And then some local Gentiles, some Corinthians start to believe, and all these baptisms are happening. All of a sudden, God uses this, this hostility, providentially uses this bad thing to push Paul into a good thing, into a fruitful thing. And that's another lesson we can take home today. When we are trying to share Jesus with others or use our life for Christ and we feel like bad things are happening or we're experiencing hostility, that's not necessarily a sign that God is not with you. That may be God's servant that he's using to push you into another avenue, into another area, just like he pushed Paul into something that was fruitful. This is what we learn in the second scene, in providential hostility. In the third scene, in verses 9 to 11, we see a providential vision. So as you look at these verses in verses 9 to 11, uh, if you read between the lines, Paul seems like he's feeling a bit afraid at this point. He's tempted to stop speaking. He's tempted to be silent about the gospel. And humanly speaking, it was understandable. I mean, in previous cities, when things started to heat up, he'd been thrown in prison or his life was started, started to be threatened, he had to flee. And so at this point, he's starting to feel a little bit fearful. This, Paul wasn't just sort of this macho guy that just marched through Europe and spread the gospel, and it was just easy. He was just like us. And so just at the right time, Jesus comes along in this vision and encourages Paul. He says to him in verse 9, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. I just love that. Jesus comes along and he encourages Paul. He says, keep going. Don't stop. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to let you be put in prison like in other cities. Keep going. And besides, Paul, what you're doing when you're preaching the gospel, it's not just going to possibly save people. I have people in this city people that I've chosen, people that are going to come into my family through the preaching of the gospel. And so Paul is encouraged, and he spends the longest time he has ever spent so far in the book of Acts in this city. He spends a year and a half teaching the gospel, training these new disciples, these new followers on what the gospel is all about and what it means for their lives. It's a fruitful year and a half. 
And that's what we see in this third scene, a providential vision. Now today I wonder how it would affect you if you could receive a vision like that of Jesus. If Jesus could appear to you perhaps in a dream or in a vision and it was just so vivid and he was saying to you, I'm with you, just keep sharing Jesus. Just keep sharing me. Keep sharing the good news with others. I wonder how that would affect you and me. Because the truth is, Jesus has already promised his support as we do this. In Matthew 28, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And here's his promise as we devote ourselves to that work. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is one of the most incredible promises in the Bible, and it comes in the context of disciple-making, of sharing the good news and inviting people to become disciples or followers of Jesus. When you step out and you think about, how do I use my life? How do I invite others to come to know more about Jesus? Jesus is with you in that church. Let his presence and let his promises encourage you to keep going with that work. And lastly, in the final scene, we see providential politics in verses 12 to 17. Now, it had been a year and a half or so, and the Jews across Corinth united together and said, we're going to get rid of Paul. We're going to, let's, let's do something. And they decided to bring him before this proconsul called Gallio. Now, Gallio had a lot of power in the Roman Empire. To put it in perspective, he had a higher role than Pilate did in Judea, the one who Jesus was crucified under. He was higher than Pilate. Um, He was the brother of a very prominent historian. If you know a little bit about Roman history, you would have heard of the name Seneca. So Gallio is Seneca's brother. Anyway, he's very high up. He's very prominent. And he's in Corinth at this time. And one of the things that proconsuls would do is they would hear legal cases. And so the Jews thought, this is our opportunity to get rid of Paul. Let's bring him in. Let's make it look like he's inciting problems. And maybe Gallio will come down hard on him. So they drag him before Gallio, and they say in verse 13, this man is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now they keep it vague. They don't say whether he's breaking Roman law or Jewish law, which we find in the Old Testament. Because they're hoping, I guess, that Gallio will come down hard and he'll just take it in the most negative way possible. Paul wants to defend himself, but before he can, Gallio speaks into this. And he says in verse 14, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. And he embarrasses the Jews. He actually drives them out of his courts. And they try to get his attention again by beating Sosthenes, this synagogue leader, but he he pays no attention to them. Now, how do we see God's hand at work in this? What? How do we see God's providence at work? Well, you see, Gallio, by making this decision, he actually set a precedent in the, local, in the Roman legal system that other governors and judges could follow. So what did he do? Well, he said, this is a question about your own law. So essentially, what he's saying is that this Christian movement is something within Judaism, which was a legal religion in the Roman Empire. Okay, So if he had have said, what is this new Christian thing, this new cult, or whatever this is, If he had said something like that, 
then it would have been counted as an illegal religion and would have had no protections whatsoever in the Roman Empire. So it's actually good and providential and favorable that he said, this is a Jewish thing that we're dealing with. So this is what we see in the fourth scene, that God's hand was at work, even using a a pagan ruler to give protection to the early Christians. Now, sometimes today you may feel frustrated by Australian politics or global politics. Maybe you feel frustrated at times. Maybe you think that it's becoming more anti-Christian or there's a law that's being passed that's not godly or good. But this teaches us that we don't need to get frustrated or agitated or despair, but that God is on the throne and that Jesus is ruling all things. And if he wants to, he can move a pagan ruler or a governor or an Australian politician to do what he needs to build his church and to move the gospel forward. We can trust King Jesus today in our world. In Paul's time in Corinth, we see God's providence. We see God's hand guiding all things toward his good ends. God's hand was guiding Priscilla and Aquila to partner with Paul. God's hand guided Timothy and Silas back to him with a financial gift so that he could start preaching full-time. God's hand used the hostility to push Paul into a more fruitful avenue of ministry. God chose to use, to, to use Jesus at the right time in a vision to encourage Paul to keep going. God even used Gallio, this high Roman official, to give Christianity legal protection in the Roman Empire. God's hand was guiding all things towards his good ends. You see, in Acts 18, we learn that King Jesus reigns over all things from his throne in heaven, and nothing can oppose his hand. I love how Dane Ortland talks about Jesus' reign in his book, Deeper, and I just find this so encouraging. It says, Jesus Christ is overseeing all that happens, both in the church and in world history at large. Our perception of and ability to see his rule may wax and wane, but that's perception only. His actual rule holds steady, supreme, strong, exhaustive, all-seeing. No drug deal goes down apart from his awareness. No political scandal unfolds beyond the reach of his vision. No injustice can be exacted behind his back. When today's world leaders gather together, they themselves are held in the hand of a risen Galilean carpenter. This supreme reign holds true not only for the world and the cosmos, but also for your own little life. He sees you. He knows you. Nothing is hid from his gaze. Jesus rules. And this Jesus is the one whose hand was guiding the events of Acts 18 for the spread of the gospel. And his hand is still behind the spread of the gospel today. If King Jesus is for this, who can stop him? So maybe like I asked at the beginning, maybe you've tried to do good and share the gospel with others, but it's been thrown back in your face. Maybe you've been faithfully following Jesus for years and you've been rattled by a shock medical diagnosis. Maybe you've been trying to build your family rhythms around Jesus and around church, but then things have gotten harder and you've experienced relational strains or financial burdens, and you've wondered why. Why this? Why now? What good is this serving? Well, let Acts 18 encourage you in those times. Let it encourage you to keep seeking 
Jesus, because his hand is guiding all things toward his good ends. Priscilla and Aquila were refugees. Paul was broke, and he was experienced terrible hostility. And yet God worked with these bad things to do wonderful things in their lives and for the spread of the gospel. And that's exactly what God ended up doing with that Frenchman I mentioned earlier. Remember that Frenchman I mentioned? He was driven out of his country. He found himself as a refugee. And he made his way eventually to Geneva in Switzerland. And this refugee became one of the most influential leaders in the Reformation. His name is John Calvin. Many people know of his name today. Now, he wasn't a perfect man. He made some serious errors as well. But God used him to bring leadership and clarity to a movement that was recovering the gospel and that was helping people come into that relationship with Jesus through faith. God used a refugee to do wonderful things like that. Calvin may not have been able to trace God's hand when he fled France, but God's hand was guiding all these things for the spread and recovery of the gospel. Whether it's in the time of Paul or in the time of Calvin or in our time now, King Jesus reigns over all things from his throne in heaven. And nothing can oppose the advance of the gospel under his hand. Nothing and no one. So let's give ourselves to Jesus' cause. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you for your presence with us. You promised it to us. We thank you that we are counted worthy to be your people. We thank you that you've entrusted to us this local area and people that you love in this area that don't yet know you. We pray, Lord, give us such a heart for them. And would you please encourage our hearts when we feel like it's difficult or people don't want to listen or they're not interested. Lord, encourage our hearts with what you did in Acts 18 and what you've been doing throughout all of history. Your hand is guiding all things, Jesus. And so, Lord, if you are for us, who can be against us? Help us, Lord, to pray for opportunities, to love people well, and to share the good news as we have opportunity. Lord, use us for your glory. We pray that we would see a massive ingathering of your people into your family, into your church across Brisbane. We pray for that, Lord, and we pray, Lord, help us to be willing, help us to be bold and to be used by you in that. Lord, we love you. Please lead us and guide us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.